Welcome to episode 86 of the AAEM Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. AAEM RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Caitlin Parks, a resident at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as current AAEM RSA board member at large, speaks with Dr. Frasa Adamakis. Today, Drs. Parks and Adamakis discuss various lectures, including congenital cardiac disease, how to approach sick neonate, and PEDS trauma in part one of their podcast. Hi, I'm Caitlin Parks, a PGY3 at Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined today by Dr. Frasso Adamakis. She is the Vice Chair of Education and Medical Education Fellowship Director at Metropolitan Harlem Emergency Medicine and Residency. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So we're going to talk about a few different talks of yours at AEM, um, and let's start with your congenital cardiac kids. Okay, these kids kind of scare me, and I am training in a place where we have, you know, board certified pediatric emergency medicine attendings. We have cardiologists in house and uh, blue babies are not something that I think anybody is the most comfortable with unless that's kind of their specialty. So can you talk to us kind of about the initial assessments, um, the kind of sick versus not sick and kind of the, the first things that you need to do for these kids? Yeah, definitely. And that's actually why I created this talk when I graduated residency. I said, you know, this just scares the life out of me. So I have to figure out a way that if this does and when this does come into my emergency department, I feel a little bit more comfortable handling it because I am not PEM trained just like the majority of us here. So the, I mean, the first thing we do in emergency medicine when you see a baby and let's define this. So congenital cardiac diseases, they're going to be picked up in neonates, which means less than three months old. So if you have a little baby less than three months old who comes into the emergency department, I mean, the first thing that all of us do, and we don't even realize sometimes we do it, is you're looking at, are they sick? Are they not sick, right? So that's going to be, how do they look? Are they pink? Are they gray? Do they happen to be blue? Are they tachypnic? Do their vital signs look abnormal? And sometimes it can be hard when it's winter and mom comes or dad comes with them bundled up and, you know, there's this little baby bundled up and clothes, but undress your baby head to toe, um, recheck those vital signs yourself, look at the baby, look at their work of breathing, look at the color of their skin and how they're acting, what's their muscle tone. Babies are supposed to be, you know, scrunched up and, and kind of all flexed. If they have no muscle tone and they look floppy, it's not necessarily always one thing. There's a lot of things that can cause that. Um, but so all of these together are going to help you figure out who's sick and who's not sick. So of course, that's your first, your first step. Okay. And so let's say your assessment, you're concerned that the kid is sick. Maybe they're not as alert as you would expect. They're kind of, their color is off or they don't have as good a tone. Um, what kind of is the next step in your assessment? So I think the question that we're alluding to is how do I figure out that the baby in front of me has a congenital cardiac disease? Because it would be nice if they came in with a stamp on their forehead. And sometimes they do. The parents come in and say, they're scheduled for a VSD repair in five days and you're going, oh God, okay, this is what I have to deal with. And that's helpful. Um, although, you know, you're, we're gonna talk about the management. So what we're doing to figure out or um, what's going on with the kid in front of you, I generally, and in my talk that I gave at AEM, 
I use a mnemonic. This is a mnemonic that my mentor, who's a proud AEM mentor, um, member, Dr. Sergei Motov, he's a pain specialist. He does a ton of research in ketamine uh, use and pain-free ED. Anyway, he's my mentor. He's wonderful. And he gave me this mnemonic years ago. And you don't have to like the mnemonic, but what this mnemonic taught me, and I generally don't like mnemonics because I can never remember them. But for me, what this mnemonic taught me is how to make a broad differential when I'm either confused, I'm stuck, or I'm thinking, you know what, maybe I'm anchoring on the 10th back pain patient of the day, right? And I need to take a step back. So this mnemonic is applicable to everything, but I think especially when a sick kid comes in and it's undifferentiated, something like this will be helpful because we, like you said, we don't see sick kids all the time, thankfully. So the mnemonic is T-I-M-O-T, T being trauma, I being infection, M being metabolic, O being organic, meaning run through your organ systems, and then T being toxicologic. So I, I run through and I try to think, okay, is there anything in these categories that based off the history and physical, my patient is falling into? So that's kind of also just a general approach that I would take for a sick baby who doesn't come in with a diagnosis on their forehead. And now the question is, okay, so what is a cardiac kid gonna present like? The cardiac kids, um, if you remember from medical school or just you know from things we learned in training, the biggest thing like anything in emergency medicine is history and physical. So babies, we need to know about their feeds. Are they breastfed? Are they bottle fed? How have they been feeding? So cardiac kids, as you probably remember somewhere deep down in the crevices of our brain, they have trouble with feeding. Feeding is actually a lot of work for babies. So are they taking less than usual? Are they pulling off the bottle or the breast to take a couple breaths? Parents are saying they used to drink three to four ounces and now I can barely get two in them because they pull off and they fuss and they cry and they just seem very uncomfortable. So that's a really a hallmark classic finding for a cardiac kid. Um, included with that, they might also add they've been losing weight or um, we're concerned that they're losing weight because they really aren't feeding as much as usual. Um, other things in your history. So obviously if there's risk factors, um, did the mom have a normal birth? Uh, did the mom actually birth this baby? Did the mom have a normal birth? Did they have prenatal care? Is there a family history of this? Um, and that can help you kind of also, obviously, if there's a family history of something that's putting it higher on your differential. And the only other thing in the history to keep in mind is that some kids can actually come in with a fever. And although the rule is, you know, you can't usually have two things going on, the fever could be that they got from the toddler at home could be what tips them over into cardiac failure because they were just trying to maintain homeostasis and they were just trying to stay alive. And um, this, is the, this is what throws them into failure. So just because you see your 10th fever of the day in December, when whether you say COVID, RSV or whatever, that's the season where kids get sick. Um, again, keep in mind these history things, like how are they feeding? Uh, that's really the biggest history thing to look for. And then next physical exam. So obviously vital signs are important. Are they tachypneic? Is there increased work of breathing? Like we talked about what's their color. So if they're blue or gray, sometimes it's actually kind of hard to tell the difference between both and that's okay, but they're not pink. Um, they, or maybe they're pink, but they look like they have edema. That's weird. Babies aren't supposed to have edema. They're kind of pruny little kids, right? Um, so things like that are definitely important in your uh, physical exam. What do their lungs sound like? You know, RSV sounds like, I don't know, crackles, raw kai, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
cardiac failure, pulmonary edema can sound like that as well. So you want to um, put this picture together, um, check for hepatosplenomegaly. If you don't do that normally, you're never going to figure out when a kid actually has hepatomegaly, right? So you palpate and you're going, oh, I can actually really feel this baby's liver. That could be another sign. And blood pressures. So sick kids should get blood pressures checked if they're hypo or hypertensive or the nurse in their attempts to verify that blood pressure gets two different blood pressures in the arms or legs. That's definitely another clue. And then the last thing is if, you, if you're getting this picture where you're thinking, maybe this is cardiac, there's some weird history with the feedings, um, the patient has increased work of breathing, I'm not convinced it's bronchiolitis, or maybe they look blue and you're not 100% sure. Let's say you see hypoxia, but it's a poor waveform and you're unsure. Um, what you can do to help you is, um, so you want to check uh, for the pulse socks on the right arm and the left leg. It's um, complicated to get into why, not really necessary, but if you can memorize something, uh, check in your right arm and then the legs. And if there was a pulse ox difference, then that would be a sign that there's some sort of shunting going on. And so that would be for like our cyanotic yes. genital yeah. problems. And what I'm going to get like into kind of the, also the two different types, the two different um, ways you should think of cardiac diseases. Yeah. So maybe that, maybe I'm jumping the gun, but that no. was going to be kind of my question. Like if we get a difference in our, you know, pre and post-ductal um, oximetry, then that's kind of pushing you more towards a cyanotic lesion. And then would your other category be those kids that are in heart failure? And then yeah. how do you hash out the difference? Exactly. So that? you know what you're doing. You don't need me here. But that's exactly what in my research on this topic, when I was thinking, okay, I need something simplified when it's, you know, three in the morning and I've got this kid who's peri-arrest in front of me, I can't be trying to remember the different, the five T's, right? So actually um, the literature does support this approach that there's really two different ways to think about this. Uh, and to take a step back, remember, if you're still not clear with this, do things like you do with adults. I, I really think that the adult emergency medicine physician has to think of kids as little adults. Of course, there's going to be differences with weight-based dosing. The same way you're not going to dose morphine for a geriatric, you know, 40 kilo woman to a 25-year-old 300 pound male, right? So I think when we don't think of kids as aliens, it makes us more comfortable. So do things like you would to a kid, like you would to adult. Get an ABG if you're still not convinced of their pulse ox. It's okay. We don't always need to do ABGs, but when you're questioning hypoxia, of course, get a chest x-ray, you see cardiomegaly, you have a diagnosis, do a bedside ultrasound. You know, it might be technically challenging. I've actually been surprised how easy it can be on kids. You see beelines, which we all can pretty easily check for. Um, you see that the right side of the heart is massive. I mean, again, it, it's, it's putting all of this together to help you come up with a diagnosis. So here we are, we do an ultrasound, we do a bunch of things and we're going, okay, this is cardiac. And now you're going, okay, so what's the next step? So yes, as you stated, you can think of them as either cyanotic or heart failure. And if you actually look at the literature, it doesn't matter which of the cyanotic heart diseases the patient has. In 99, I did the calculation, like 99.5% of cyanotic heart diseases, prostaglandin is the uh, emergent therapy that you have to give them. There's an extremely tiny subset, again, 99.5. 
an extremely tiny subset that you should not give prostaglandin to. So, I mean, in emergency medicine, I will take a 99.5% chance, right? So the, the point is, is if they're blue and they're cyanotic, you give them prostaglandin. Um, we do know that prostaglandin will make the patient apneic, so they will have to be intubated, especially, you know, you're dealing with transports and it's supportive care. So there's nothing else for these patients. It's supportive care, prostaglandins that you have to remember for these patients. And you do everything else the same. You want to avoid hyperoxia and hypoxia like you would for an adult, right? You want to really um, resuscitate them before you intubate them like you would for an adult, right? So I'm trying to paint a picture, which I think is important for your comfort and for your patients, treat them like adults. It is better for the regular emergency physician to do that. Cyanotic, prostaglandin, and everything else is the same. And so treating them like adults, are you giving Lasix to babies that you're concerned about heart failure in? And that's a great segue. So yes, if they are not cyanotic and they're edematous and you see cardiomegaly and you see pulmonary edema and you're going, well, this is a congestive heart failure picture. Yes, you give them Lasix. Now these patients will usually present in extremis. They're usually gonna be hypotensive and hypotensive kids are peri-arrest. And I have goosebumps thinking about these kids. None of us like taking care of them. But again, you're going to treat them the same way you have your STEMI patient in cardiogenic shock. You're going to give them a presser that has beta activity. So you can do milrinone if you have. I think most of us probably have dobutamine. We know dobutamine can worsen hypotension. So you're going to pair that. I'm not going to get into an epi nor epi debate at this point. It doesn't matter. Keep your kid alive and stabilize them. So dobutamine and something with alpha activity, usually either epi or norepinephrine. So again, it's Supportive care, it's really resuscitating before you intubate. Um, maybe you could try an awake intubation. You know, you've really got to think about this intubation here because we know for cardiac failure, it's a high risk intubation. So you're doing everything the same. It's a congestive heart failure. You're giving Lasix, dobutamine, norepinephrine, the same way you would for a congestive heart failure patient who's um, hypotensive and circling the drain. Great, thank you. I really like how you kind of simplify such a critical uh, case presentation and give us some really applicable tools that we're quite comfortable with using in our adult patients. Awesome. I'm happy to do so. Great, so let's talk kind of continued along this line of kids being little adults, which don't tell my PEM faculty, I've said that. It's only like, ah, James, I, my, my PEM faculty and friends do not like that either. But I think it's a really smart approach to take some of the stress off the table. And that's kind of, like I have seen one of the biggest factors in a very critically ill kid um, is kind of the, the stress and that includes parents and, you know, your nursing staff, your RT, everybody kind of just takes things up a notch. And um, so what kind of tips do you have on being a leader in such a high stress, high stakes scenario? I will preface this with now that I am a mom of young kids, it has become extremely difficult. I don't like talking about these cases. I don't like hearing about these cases. I try to avoid them, but there are certain times that they can't be avoided, or maybe I am the most comfortable provider who's going to have to take this patient in front of me. Um, some people's practices are different, and some colleagues don't do pediatrics anymore, right? So my the point is, is or you might work at a place that has pediatrics, but they're busy with a sick patient. Parents bring dying babies into the ET all the time. So I think as much as we want to avoid is my point, you have to keep that skill set up. That's, that's a firm belief of mine. So especially now that I'm 
dislike taking care of uh, this even more, how, what are some tips? Um, so I think the first thing is, is preparation if you have the time to prepare. And what preparation can mean is know where all your stuff is. So especially for people who do locums or when you're in attending and your residents are doing a lot of the procedures, you still have to be the most knowledgeable person in the room and you still have to be able to do everyone's job better than them. So know where your respiratory treatment, um, know where your respiratory equipment is, know where the pediatric uh, stylets are, know where if you don't have a cart, right? Like you need to know where all this equipment is. And I'm a big proponent for mental simulation. Think about these cases every so often on your commute to work. Okay. What am I going to do if I don't have a notification and then maybe you have a challenging team? Maybe there's a specific nursing team. Maybe this is just a New York problem where you find it challenging to work with them. How will I lead the team to do well with this resuscitation? So, you know, I run through different scenarios in my head. Um, close of communication is really important. Taking a breath and telling yourself, I've got this is really important because like you said, it's just everyone automatically, because it's a little kid, just everyone is more nervous. The stakes are just so much higher. So calm yourself down, tell yourself you have this. You are the most experienced person in the room. You are the best person to be taking care of this. You take care of adult resuscitations day in and day out. So you know how to take care of a pediatric resuscitation. They are not little aliens, okay? They are just like adults. You just have to remember a couple different things the way you would for any different patient population. Your pregnant patient, your elderly, your morbidly obese, or your patients with elevated BMI, right? Like every patient population has a different way you approach them. So think of kids like this. Um, Brazel tape. So Brazel tape, Brazel tape, Brazel tape. I need to offload some of that mental calculation. I think you have to memorize some things, right? You have to know the dose of epinephrine off the top of your head. Um, there are definitely some things, you know, how to shock a patient. Those are some numbers that you have to remember, but use the Brazel tape. And if you are somewhere where you have a larger team, where you have residents, or, you know, you're a resident and you're leading it and you have junior residents, you want to assign someone to the Brazel tape who actually has seen it and knows what's on it and understands stuff. So you're not assigning a brand new intern to the Brazel tape. It is actually a little bit confusing. You know, you have to lay it to the patient. You had there's two different sides to the Brazel tape. Where are the seizure meds versus where are the intubation equipment? So assign someone, to, and their job is just to read things off the Brazel tape. So that's an easy way that I've, I'll mentally offload. Um, if you have people you can call for help. So if you're at a place where you're double covered, ask the other attending to come and just stand at the foot of the bed with you and help you, you're running it. But if you need to just you know, run questions, ask questions, they can take care of the family, which is a huge important part of this. Um, if you're somewhere that you don't have other attendings, get your senior nurse, get the charge nurse, get that nurse who's been there 20 years, who's done this and say, I want to assign you to the family because that will elevate the situation significantly. And there's actually research, there was a great study done in a bunch of different simulation studies that has shown that for a true resuscitation, I'm talking about the cardiac arrest kit, which none of us like, um, parents prefer to be in the room. And when they're not in the room and asked later, they regret not being in the room. So having said that, not every parent is gonna be able to be in the room during a resuscitation, but assign the nurse 
have the nurse talk to them and say, do you want to be in here? Have them obviously explain what's going on so the parent doesn't pass out. Um, and the nurse can stand off to the side, really in the corner of the room, but so the parents are there. Um, so again, whether they're in arrest or not, but you need someone assigned to family, keep in mind family might wanna be there. And I, I honestly just try to keep these simple. I try to think, take things step-by-step. Step. You know, I do my CABCs, you know, I, uh, and we can get into that if we want, but I do my ABCs. I want someone experienced intubating, or if I have to intubate, if you're somewhere where you, if there's only one of you, assign someone else, if you have a mid-level, they can run, you know, a PA, they can run the resuscitation while you intubate if you feel that that's the most appropriate step. Um, but get everyone situated, close loop communication, what are people's roles, someone on the Braslow tape, someone with the family, you, things are, someone's RT is bagging the patient, okay, now I have things a little bit set, I can go intubate the patient. Try to keep the room calm, lower your voice, tell everyone I have to be the only one talking. Your energy will really affect everyone else's energy. So it's a lot about controlling yourself, which is not easy to do. And I, you have to positive self-talk here, right? Like you cannot say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what, what if? And yes, that's a possibility, but you have to say, I've got this. Um, and so those are some things that I do. Again, I'm at an academic place. I have residents, but overnight I'm single coverage. I don't have backup overnight and I can be with some very new residents sometimes. So even in a place like mine, that seems shiny and fancy and um, I have so much at my disposal, you have that until you don't. So you have to know where everything is, practice these things in your head and really just tell yourself, I've got this. It's just like an adult. It's just a tiny bit different, right? You're using cuffed tubes. We're not doing uncuffed tubes anymore. You can use a Mac or a Miller. I mean, we know how to do both of those things, right? You've got the Brazzle tape. So it's just not so foreign. Um, and I think some of these, all of these as individual little tips put together have helped me in the moment feel a little bit calmer, debrief these codes um, after, or it doesn't even have to be a code, a critical pediatric patient, you need to debrief that scenario with a team after. Um, that's really important for the team. So that was a lot, but those are kind of some uh, tips and tricks to help you feel slightly more comfortable in a very uncomfortable situation. Thank you. So jumping into kind of some of the trauma specific and you were talking about the alphabet and rearranging the alphabet, can you go through just Kind of quickly, um, your you know pediatric ATLS approach, or how maybe your approach is different than what we've learned. Okay, yeah, and again, you know, disclaimer: I am not PEM, right? But I think that that is why it makes me in this unique position to be talking about this because our training is different, our level of comfort with kids is different, and sometimes you need people on the same level having these conversations, and sometimes we need deep dives and we need experts, right? I'm not doing deep dives; I'm doing how does the regular old ER doctor take care of a pediatric patient? So if a pediatric trauma comes in, again, it's a lot of mental talk, take care of yourself, I'm the team leader, I've got this, uh, assign your roles, close your communication, all the stuff we spoke about. And then in terms of the algorithm in ATLS, so it's not ABCs, it's CABC, because, and I'll explain why, uh, and this isn't a concept I made up, right, this is out there in the literature, but Okay, you, you need to get IV access before you can intubate generally, right? And when it comes to IV access, we, time and time again, it shows that we spend way too much time getting peripheral IVs. 
it's two attempts and then an IO in a sick kid. Or you can go straight to IO if they're really extremely sick, but you do not want to let your team spend more than two attempts to get an IV. If you're at that point, go to IO. So that's why circulation is first because you need IV access to do anything. And also if you rush to intubate kids, just like with adults, if you don't slightly resuscitate them, give them a bolus of fluid, give them a bolus of blood. If it's, if it's truly a trauma that needs blood resuscitation, some people might need pressors, right? Just like with adults, they're going to arrest. So you need to, a lot of times we jump to intubate, but you sit, you watch, you have a few minutes, you can give a bolus. And then if you have to intubate, you can intubate, but you can bag, there's pediatric LMAs, just I think the point is, is not every intubation needs to happen right now. It can happen in three minutes. So that's why addressing, and look, there might be nothing to do for circulation. And yes, then you go to A, check the airway. They need to be intubated. You intubate them with a C-collar if they need a C-collar. But keep in mind, you have to address hemodynamics before rushing to intubate. So C and then A for airway, uh, B for breathing, check for bilateral breast sounds. If they have a pneumothorax, you know, you might be going, oh no, where's my chest tube? So it's just like an adult. You uh, want to do large chest tubes if you think that there's any blood. Theoretically, you can put a pigtail for just a simple pneumothorax, but in a, we're kind of, it sounds like we're talking about a resuscitation, a really sick kid. You can always do finger thoracostomy um, just to open things up. If you don't have time to put in a chest tube, you can uh, find the best chest tube available. You don't have to worry so much about numbers and stuff. Um, I think check for breast sounds. If you truly thought there was a hemoneumothorax that needed to be immediately addressed, finger thoracostomy, just like you would for an adult, make sure they're actually, you know, in there, you get a gush of blood, you get a gush of air, um, and then you can move on and you can put the chest tube in, in a few minutes. And then we're going back to circulation. So once you've addressed maybe a little bit of the hemodynamics, you've addressed your airway, you've adjusted breathing, you do the finer details of circulation. So if they're really hypotensive and they're probably gonna need to go to the OR, give them what they need. Um, kids don't have a lot of circulating blood volume. So after you're at two or three boluses, usually at about two to three boluses, you really should be thinking of massive transfusion like you would with an adult. And so you do a ratio of one to one to one. Again, this is debatable. It doesn't, for all intents and purposes, doesn't matter. But blood, um, uh, platelets, FFP, you want to be giving them in a one to one to one fashion. For kids, the same way you would for an adult. You can give TXA for kids. There was a great, um, it was a pretty good study. And there's a lot of different studies out there on TXA. Uh, PEDS tracks trial that was done um, in the military. And uh, you can give TXA. It is good for kids the same way it is for adults. So those are kind of some of the little details about circulation that you're going to address in your algorithm. And then you go down. So D for disability, right? Um, you know, kids, unless they're older and their symphysis pubis has fused, you're not, you can't really check for an unstable pelvis, right? But if you think that it's a teenager and they have an unstable pelvis, put a pelvic binder, put a sheet, hold them together, check for disability head to toe. If they need pain medications for the love of everything out there, give them pain medication, morphine, 0.1 mix per kick. Surgical studies show that it does not mask underlying injury. So just because they're a kid, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be getting pain medication. 
um, you know, E for exposure, make sure you're looking everywhere like you would for an adult, but make sure you cover them and you don't precipitate hypothermia, especially in a little bit baby. They lose a lot of their uh, circulating, they lose a lot of their heat through their skin. So don't just leave them completely exposed and you've got the fan on top. And I've watched kids become hypothermic like this. So expose and then cover them up. Um, and then last, some people will say in the algorithm, you know, C, A, B, C, D, E, F, finger stick, fast, uh, you know, make sure you're not intubating someone whose glucose is 30, that would be a little embarrassing. Uh, do your fast, uh, although that's definitely not definitive management for kids. Kids need imaging the same way they do for, as adults. Great, thank you. Um, can you address a little bit of the differences? Um, I know we've focused a lot on kind of the cognitive offloading and, and reduction of your stress level by thinking of them the same. What are a couple of things that you do need to kind of remember in the back of your mind that you're going to be a little bit different on the kids rather than an adult? So it's, it's are you talking about trauma, congenital um, in general? I was thinking trauma, kind of thinking of like, you know, you do a needle crank rather than a surgical, you have some airway positioning, uh, you may pat the yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I, I've really taken a stance that I, I try not to, again, think of them like, okay, so what are the big differences? They're just a different patient population and all my patient populations deserve special care. So if we want to run through that algorithm we just proposed when it comes to airway. So there are differences the same way a patient with MR and some sort of um, congenital defect will have different approaches, right? So we know they have big heads. So you've really got to prop them up. Um, you really want to make sure you have the proper angling. Um, you know, their head should be tilted back, their chest should be out and open. So positioning, again, in any airway, if you've ever watched a failed airway, when anesthesia comes, they position them and they get them right away. So I, I think we need to put a lot of respect to positioning, especially for a pediatric patient. Spend time, look at the patient, step back. You don't see that the patient is aligned properly, tilt their head back more, prop their chest up more, right? And get that positioning correct so that you are giving yourself the highest chance of success. So we know they have big floppy epiglottises, so Miller might be your best approach. Some people are just so comfortable with Mac, we'll go with a bigger Mac. The problem with the Mac blade is that if you've ever played around with a Mac 4, it takes up a lot of room in the mouth. I'm not saying Mac 4 for a baby, but I'm saying even for an adult, our biggest Mac takes up a lot of room in the mouth. So have a, I would say have a Miller, have a Mac, uh, just so you have both in case you have to switch. The same way in any sort of adult, you might have a Mac 3 and a Mac 4 when you're unclear have a Miller and have a Mac based off your Braslow tape. And you, we talked about the stylet. It's just a cuffed stylet. We don't do uncuffed anymore. Other things when it comes to airway and the actual intubation, glide scope. So I hope most of our EDs now have the camera for pediatric glide scope. Some horrible codes that I've seen run has been People are just stuck in their ways. And again, I think think of kids is so different. There's pediatric light scopes. Use video laryngoscopy. You have that at your disposal. If you don't have it, call the OR if you're at somewhere that has an OR, right? But don't forget you have a lot of tools that you have for adults. Now, let's say you do all of this, you know, you've got your pediatric glide scope, you've got, I don't know, even you have anesthesia or someone there helping you, another attending, you're doing positioning, and for whatever, there's pediatric bougies, right? Don't forget, we have pediatric bougies, we have pediatric LMAs, um, we have pediatric OPAs, all of these different adjuncts to help us oxygenate and ventilate the patient. 
you do all this, it's not working. Now, I agree with you, it's kind of scary to think of kids airway because, well, I can't crack them, right? I mean, well, theoretically, if that was the only thing that would keep the kid alive, that's fine. No, you're not supposed to crack them, but if it's death or crack, I think you can crack them. I'm sure other people out there believe this is my an opinion of my own. Uh, you can needle, you, so you can needle crack them. You can do needle jet insufflation. So in the area of where the cricothyroid membrane would be, you can take an 18 gauge, ET, uh, 18 gauge IV catheter and you can put it in and you can attach that. So if you attach an 18 gauge catheter to a three cc syringe, actually needs to be a three cc syringe. And then you take the butt of the ET tube and you stick it in, and then you put a bag valve mask onto that. So you know how usually you put a bag valve mask onto the ET tube, right? So you take a bag valve mask, attach it to that tip of the end of the ET tube, put that into a three cc syringe because that's what's gonna hold it and put it into an 18 gauge needle, you can actually push air through that. So if you needed to get some oxygen in to hold you over to definitive management, that's um, a, a good way to do it. There's jet insufflation, which technically is different in a whole different setup. I've never really looked a ton into it because I know I don't have the setup any place I've ever worked at. So I haven't really bothered with that, but it's the same kind of concept that you're trying to add air into the airway to, to help you um, hold over. And what you could do with that, I haven't had to do it. I'm sure I'm going to say this now, I'm going to have to do it. But through that 18 gauge needle, you can actually do um, reverse intubation. So you can take in um, the, I, the wire in the central line kit, and you would have, you would need to have two experienced people. So again, either your best mid-level, um, maybe an RT if you really didn't have a big team, but someone would be at the tracheal area and they would thread the wire of a central line catheter up to the head. And then you would be there with your blade in your Mac, your Miller, whatever, waiting to see that wire come up grab the wire with McGill forceps or something, and then you would thread an ET tube over that. So uh, again, it's a little bit challenging to describe through a podcast. So I would Google it, I would look on YouTube, but there's a bunch of different things, I guess is my point that you can do to make the airway not seem so scary. So if we were to focus talking about airway, what are some of the differences? That would be how I look at airway. Um, besides that, you know, we talked about chest tubes, you got to find a chest tube that fits through the tiny ribs. You can do finger thoracostomy the same way. Circulation we spoke about, it's pretty similar, just, you know, dosing is going to be different. Again, deformity, fairly similar. Exposure, just cover them up. Uh, fast is not sensitive for kids. I mean, it's not 100% sensitive for adults either, right? But it's about 80% at best for kids. So in general, you are going to irradiate the kid. They will be okay. This is a high risk situation, but usually you're going to do head to toe CAT scan. You can maybe get away with just a chest X-ray in the lungs, but for most people, I mean, if I'm pan scanning the kid because it was a horrible trauma, I don't know why you wouldn't just get the CAT scan of the chest. Um, but that is the one uh, X-ray and CAT scan usually show the same injuries. They don't get aortic injuries the way adults do. That would be a big thing that a chest X-ray would miss. So you could maybe get away with an x-ray, but if you're pan scanning, pan scan the kid. Great, thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AAEM RSA, visit the website at 
www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with AAEM RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine, residents, and students.